Good morning, City Light. My name's Chris, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to see you guys. It's going to be a fun morning. We're going to preach the Bible, get to sing some songs and worship King Jesus, so let's jump in. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 through 10. Now, let's make fun of Gavin for a minute. Last week, Gavin got to preach the incredible, beautiful call that God placed on Moses' life, that God would find him in the desert and invite him into the redemptive work of God to free the slaves. I get all of the plagues today. So yes, this is my lot in life. This should be a lot of fun. So we're going to jump in uh, 7 through 10 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. Um, I want to start by just reminding us that the Bible is primarily about God. Um, you're not the hero of the Bible. The Bible is, is not primarily about you. There's different characters, different themes. But the Bible is primarily God's way of revealing himself to his people. And so it's through his words that we find out who is this God that we worship and serve. Now listen, Christianity is not that God has come just simply to serve us, but that we have primarily been built to serve and worship our God. So let me just show you why that's so important. I think that we oftentimes have an inflated view of ourselves, and we start to see ourselves as the hero of the story. So um, I like to talk about my son's sin, not my sin, because it's easier to see his sin, and it's less convicting for me. So let's just talk about my son for a little while. My son, is, uh, his name is Paxton. He's four years old, and he suffer for, suffers from what I call a God complex, okay? And here's what I mean. Recently, I took my son to the Husker game, and uh, you guys know with the Husker game, they do this thing called the tunnel walk. It's where all the Huskers run out onto the field at the very beginning of the game, and the band goes crazy, and the announcer comes on the PA and says, here's your Huskers, and the crowd, like 90,000 people go insane for like five minutes. They just freak out, and they, everybody celebrates. Here's our team. We're ready to play, and let's go do some business, okay? Go Big Red. Let's get it. Now, so my son sees this culture, and you have to understand, when I come home, we do the same thing every day. I walk in the door, he puts his Husker jersey on, we go to the basement if it's, if it's too hot outside or if it's rainy, and we do tackle drills, okay? And so I've taught my son three basic moves. It's the moves on the PlayStation, okay? You got the spin move, the shake move, the stiff arm move. My son knows all three, okay? And so we'll do, hey, do the shake move this time. Boom, bounce to the left, okay? So we're doing the thing. So basically in Paxton's mind, you got to understand, he's a Husker. Like, he's got the gear, he plays with dad, he's basically at that level. And so, um, so this is what happened this week. He came out of his bedroom, it's early in the morning, I'm sitting at the table, I'm doing my thing, eating some Cheerios or something. He comes out down the hallway in his little jammies, hey Pax, how you doing buddy? Daddy, do that thing. Okay, what do you mean do that thing? It took me a while, we had to figure it out. What he meant was, he wanted his own tunnel walk. <laughs> daddy, do that thing. I was like, what do you mean? You know when the Huskers, and they go, go big red. So then I did it. He went out. He said, I'm going to go in my room. I'm going to come out, and you're going to do the thing. So I came out. He comes back out. I say, playing for the Huskers, Paxton James Horuska. And he comes out around the corner like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he just is owning the moment, you guys. He's owning the moment. Now, I say that. Because at best, my son carries himself with a sense of swagger. At worst, he thinks he's God, okay? So <laughs> he thinks he should be worshipped, that I am his fan and not his authoritative father. And that I am there to announce to the world that he's now ready to eat his Cheerios, okay? So this is, this is what I call a God complex. Now, you guys are calling CPS, Child Protective Services on me. Your kid's got issues too. Just chill out, okay? 
Now, we're going to work on that over time. God's going to sanctify him. But isn't this our posture towards God? So often, our primary posture towards God is not, Lord, I need you. I'm dependent on you. You're the hero of my story. Our primary posture towards God is, hey, you know, I'm kind of awesome. If you just kind of stay out of my way, teach me some principles, and empower me to be great, that's what I'll do, you know? We think that we are a gift to God, that God is not a gift to us. But the Bible clearly communicates that God's big and we're small. That God is the creator and we are creation. And when we get those things mixed up, it doesn't go well for us. God despises the proud. He delights in the humble. And so we're going to see this tension built out behind this prideful man who has a hard heart towards God, who thinks he's awesome. His name is Pharaoh. And and then we're going to see God, the one true creator and sustainer of all things. And we're going to have this showdown in Exodus chapter 7 through 10. And what we're going to see in his one corner is this most powerful man in all of the nations and all of the land. His name is Pharaoh. He's got more property, more power, more chariots, more land, more slaves than anyone else. He's known as a powerful man. And yet you're going to have God who's going to work through two 80-year-old men named Moses and Aaron, and he is going to make this man look silly. Now, let me remind us how we got here. Chapter 5 in Exodus, verse 1 and 2. What we saw last week is Gavin said, Um, God called Moses and Aaron to go tell Pharaoh, hey, you've had my people on loan. I'm here to get them. You better release them or it's not going to go well for you, okay? Now, Moses and Aaron show up to have a conversation with Pharaoh, and let me give the punchline away. It does not go well. Let me show you guys. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the first interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, and um, this is going to show, this is going to set up the showdown that we're going to see in chapter 7 through 10. So here's what he says. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh. So here they are. They're being obedient to God's leading. They went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast uh, to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, get this tone, y'all, get this tone. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I, do not, I, I will not let Israel go. Did you catch the tone? Who is the Lord? Why do I need to obey him? This is the question that must be answered in our text. God needs to reveal himself. And before we pick, up, pick on, on uh, Pharaoh here, is it not true that we say this same thing to God? Come on. Let's keep it very real. Who is the Lord that he should define my sexuality? Who is the Lord that he can speak in and teach me how I need to live out my masculinity or my femininity or how I need to treat my wife or how how I need to handle my finances? Who is the Lord that he would speak in, that I would have to obey him? But the Lord has answered those questions, and there's a reason that we as people obey his command, strive to understand and put ourselves under his lordship and under his leadership because he is the rightful creator and we are his creation, and things just work better when we obey, amen? So, um, He's asking this question. This is the tension. There's this this disconnect, this flat-out disobedience and defiance by Pharaoh who's looking at the God who created him and saying, I don't even know your name. I've got my own deities. Who is the Lord, your little Hebrew deity? I don't have time and space to recognize that. I am God in this land. I'm the commander-in-chief around here. I make the commands. I don't obey the commands. That's what he's saying here. And he's pushing up and he's resisting against God. And it's going to set up this showdown that's going to happen in epic proportions. So let me show you how um, this works out. Now, um, I want to basically do a couple things this morning. Um, 
I've been given the easy task of preaching about four chapters. So we're going to be here until 3.30. So text your friends, tell them you're not going to lunch. And um, what I'm going to do real briefly is I'm going to walk us through um, nine of the ten plagues. We're going to handle the tenth plague, which is death on the firstborn, um, next week. But for the fir- I'm going to just summarize the first nine, and then we're going to drop into the story because I think this story matters, and we're going to learn five unique things about God, his character, and how he relates to us. So let me summarize the plagues, then we're jumping into five things that God re- uniquely reveals about himself in these plagues. So let's dial in. Uh, the first thing, the first plague that we see is... Um, uh, first of all, that God turns the water that's in the Nile into blood. Now, this was a huge deal because in Egypt, they worshiped the Nile. Pharaoh made offerings and sacrifices to the Nile. The Nile was really the heartbeat of other people. It was the thing that sustained them, provided for them, and allowed them to do life in the desert. And God is going to triumphantly say, this is not God, I'm God. And he turns it into blood. And for seven days, the fish stink. They die. It does not go well. The Lord is communicating, I am the Lord. He's answering that question. Remember, who am I? So next is, the second thing is frogs. God brings a swarm of frogs. Not like, oh, that's a cute little froggy, ribbit, 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 okay? You guys ever heard frogs sing at night? It is kind of pretty. Frogs in your house, in your kitchen, in your bed, that's nasty. Just nasty, okay? And I love that the Bible keeps it so real. It said there was so many frogs that after the plague was over, they all died and they had to, like, kind of had to like, put them together in a big heap and it just stunk. It was stanky, okay? Not a good place to be. Do the stanky leg. Do the, anyways, okay, so third plague, giant gnats. Okay, you got gnats. He takes dust, he makes gnats. Okay, have you ever been outside? Bugs are on you. It can be beautiful, but if bugs are all in your face, it's just not even fun. People are miserable. They are uncomfortable. Things are not going well. Fourth plague is similar. It's the, it, God sends a swarm of flies to overflow the homes of the Egyptian. I think we have that. Perfect. Up top. And then the fifth one is um, you start to see this progression of the plagues. It's Egyptian livestock are struck down. Now, the Lord is kind and gracious. He comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, man, I can relent. You got a choice. You can let my people go or we can keep playing this game. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He resisted the Lord. He pushed up against the Lord and he was defiant against the Lord. So the Lord said, hey, I'm going. If you do not let my people go, I'm going to strike down all of your livestock. Now, this is your economic means. This is how you get work done. Okay, I'm going to strike them all down. It's not going to go well. Pharaoh hardens his heart, and so the Lord does as he promised to do. And in this, you're seeing the progression of God's wrath and of God's judgment that cannot be mocked. The Lord said, you cannot mock God. You will reap what you sow. And you see this progression where God at first is just kind of being annoying. Like, I'm just going to give you frogs and bugs and some stinky fish in your river. (laughs) Now he's like, hey, bro, what are you going to do with that? They're all gone. What are you going to do? He's bringing this country to its knees. Sixth is the Lord, uh, he, he starts to, he brings boils onto all of the people. And so now all of the people in Egypt are physically suffering. The Lord is saying, I am Lord even over your body. Did I not create your flesh? There's nobody that can protect you from me. Okay, no outfit. There's no healer outside of myself. I'm the Lord even of your body. Seventh plague is hail. He speaks to the sky and rains down hail. And it says it just devastates every field, every produce, everything is destroyed by the hail. Locust, number eight, uh, God swarm, brings swarms of locusts. It says there's not even one green plant or leaf remaining in the land. Like just crazy. Everything's gray. Everything has been devastated. You can't get a salad nowhere. That's horrible, okay? 
Just, just not a good place. And the Lord is saying, I, I am the Lord over big and small. I got gnats. I got locusts. I didn't even got to use the lions to destroy you, bro. I'll just use some locusts. Tear you down with that. I'm the Lord of it all, big and small. How are you going to recognize my power? Number nine, he says he brings darkness upon the land for three days. God speaks to the sun and it hides its face for three days. Now, this is, again, mocking the Israelites or the Egyptians, who they worshipped this, this false god, the sun. Even Pharaoh saw himself as like a son or a relative, God, a deity unto the sun. He was related to the sun somehow. I don't even understand how that tree on the family tree worked, but it, whatever, it happened. So he's saying that. And God is saying, no, no, really, I will speak to the sun and make it hide its face from you for three days. And listen, in this place, when darkness is there, terror reigns, isolation reigns, fear reigns. This all of a sudden cocky and confident nation, the, the Egyptians, has now brought to a standstill. No one leaves their house. Everyone is in fear. The Lord has established, I am the creator of all things. Now, the question on the table, remember how we got here. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And the Lord has said, hey, I am the God who just made all your false little gods look silly. I just overturned your entire religious system. Who is the Lord? The Lord is the one who just devastated you economically. You got no plants. You got no animals. You have no produce. How are you going to feed your people? How are you going to make a profit in the open market? I have devastated you economically. Who is the Lord? I've embarrassed your most pride, proudful educated uh, leader and Pharaoh. Everything he's done to try to thwart the things of God have been overturned. Who is the Lord? He's demonstrating who he is and he's answering that question in these plagues. Now, um, I wanna just drop in, like I said, five things for you this morning. If you've got your bulletin or programs, follow along. We got some fill in the blanks. That just simply means I got my sermon done before Saturday. So you can rejoice in the Lord Jesus for that. Now, um, so you can follow along there. Now, you might've seen the story Ten Commandments, I ended up watching that as a kid. My mom, I I don't even know why we had to watch it every year. Easter, we're watching the Ten Commandments and eating ham. So I've seen the story. You might have seen the story, but you might not understand why the story is significant to us thousands of years later in this moment. This is more than a history lesson, church. The Lord has some things for you in this. And so let me drop in five things that the Lord is uniquely communicating about himself. And uh, I'm hoping that today would... um, Help us to see God as he is. This is not a place that you need to come just to get some tips for your life. We need to see the Lord as he is this morning. So first thing, Lord is per- God is providing or proving he is the Lord. God is proving that he is the Lord, point one. Okay, so remember for 400 years, God's people have been living in Egypt. Egypt- Egyptians worshiped different false gods. They had different celebrations to their false gods. They were a pagan nation. And God's people, although they had remembered how the Lord had been faithful to previous generations, they had not experienced that personally and powerfully in their present time. And so they need to, they need to remember. They need with fresh eyes to see this God that can free them, that loves them, and will deliver them. They need to, before they follow God out into the desert, they need to understand that their God is not one of many, but he is the one true Lord God. Amen? So they need a fresh understanding of who he is. And that's one of the reasons that God uniquely builds out the plagues the way that he does. Have you ever asked the question, why 10 plagues, bro? Seems like a little overkill, you know? Why you got to go 10 I mean, that's just hard to teach on. It just makes my life difficult, you know? 
He could have just in a moment sent an angel, struck down Pharaoh, and whispered death upon all of Egypt, and God's people would have walked out of that nation easy. He could have done that. But he does it with 10 unique plagues. Why is that? He's doing it publicly, not privately, because he's trying to put on display for all of the world to see that our God is powerful. Our God is mighty. Our God is the one true God. And so the Lord could have done something like this, but he's trying to flex his muscles on you. He's trying to understand, hey, listen, Pharaoh, you're not bigger than me. And so he's going to communicate that to his people and build trust that he is the one true God. Let me show you how he builds this out. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. We're going to have them all up here. So if you miss it, just write it down. You can reference them. It says, the Egyptians shall know. Look at this. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring my people out of Israel from among them. Who's he going to be? One of your small little deity gods? No, no, no. He's going to be the one true Lord. Look at Exodus 8, 10. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is one. There is no one like the Lord our God. No one. Not one. 9, chapter 9, verse 14. He says this. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself and your servants and your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Not one. Now this is an important message for us, even in our decade in our culture, because here's the overwhelming narrative about God. Isn't it true that people want to argue that what works for you works for you, but don't try to push your beliefs on me? I mean, aren't all the gods basically the same? Doesn't all of the world religions basically just say, be the best version of yourself, try to love somebody, try to fight for justice, acknowledge that there's a God and things will go better for you? Don't all of the world religions basically take you to the same place? They're just different paths to get there. That's what the world wants to tell you. That's the politically correct statement. (laughs) I wish that it was biblical. I wish that I could just say, yeah, that works. Sure. It does not work. It might be politically correct, but it is not biblically accurate. God is saying about himself, I am the one true God. I am the creator. You are creation. I am Lord. My power is unmatched by anything and anyone. There is no other deity except me. And Jesus came and he said the same message, did he not? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Did Jesus say, hey, I just hope that you make me one of many gods that you believe in. Would you just acknowledge that I'm part of the equation spiritually? No, no, no. He doesn't beg for you to acknowledge him. He says, I am the one God. There is none like me. And so God in his word has chosen to reveal himself as the Lord. The powerful, mighty, capable, above all others, God. And he's proving and flexing his muscles here, saying all the others are but cheap imitations of the real thing. Amen? So, church, I want to just press this in because in our culture, we're going to constantly hear this narrative and we're going to have to keep coming back and saying, are we going to reinvent our God in a way that seems more palatable to us or are we going to acknowledge the God in the way that he defines himself throughout scripture? Amen? So that's going to be our wrestle in our culture. So, number one, God is proving that he is the Lord. Number two, uh, God is displaying his power for all to see. So in Exodus, you got to remember, these people are trying to figure out who is the God that they're going to follow, worship, and know. And God is revealing himself as both personal and as both powerful, okay? He is a personal God. And throughout all of Scripture, Zephaniah 3, that the Lord dances and sings over you. You see in Psalms that God knows you. He knits you together in, his mother, in your mother's womb. And even in the New Testament, he says he knows the places that you live. He knows the places that you work about. He understands your time, your place in history. He knows 
who you are. Every hair on your head, the Lord knows. And he's chosen to relate to you, church, as your Abba Father. There's nothing more intimate and personal than that relationship. And yet, in this scripture, do not miss that God is all-powerful. This is shocking power of what he's doing to destroy a nation with the sound of his voice. He's yielding his creation to bring chaos among these people. And so, so often we want to make God into our little buddy. That he's here to serve you and make you feel good about yourself. Listen, the God of the Bible is not some cute little poodle that you put in your purse and you walk around the mall in. Like he's not that little poodle dog. Comfy, comfort me, God. No, 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 no. God is all powerful. Don't play with him. He has wrath. He has power that is unmatched. And so let me show you how this gets played out here. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, he says this, but for this purpose, he's talking to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the, na- in all the earth. Now, I love this. He's saying two things are going to happen. First of all, Pharaoh, I know you're a big deal. You think you're awesome. But guess what? Who gave you those chariots? Who gave you that land? Who gave you that army? Who gave you these people? I've raised you up just so I can push you aside with ease and show who? All of the earth that I'm the one true God. Listen, Pharaoh has been the talk of the nations for a while. He's been the dominant one. He's been the victor. And God is saying, I am going to be the talk of the nations because my power is going to be unmatched. And we see him doing this all throughout. One of the interesting tensions, if you read all of this section of scripture, is that uh, Egypt has these uh, magicians. And uh, God starts to do these plagues. And for the first two plagues, the magicians somehow figure out a way to turn water into blood through deception. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Then the frog comes. They start pulling frogs out of hats. Oh, look at this. We can almost do what God did. Okay, they, like six frogs, not four billion. Anyways, they kind of tried. It was a nice effort. Then at the very end, the third plague, we get into gnats. And they, they look at each other and they go to the Pharaoh and they say in Exodus eight nineteen, check this out. It says, this is the finger of God. Even Pharaoh's own musicians say, bro, there's something going on here that's not deception. There's something going on here that we can't understand. This is the finger of God. He doesn't say one of the gods. He said, this this is the finger of God here at play. There's a power that we cannot explain. So um, we're going to keep moving on. But over and over and over again, we see God building out and speaking to his creation and yielding power over his creation. And so here, he speaks to the sun. The sun hides his face. He speaks to the skies. It brings down hail. Do you guys remember in the New Testament, who else did this? Um, wow, this is really painful. Thank you so much that somebody's a spirit-filled Christian. Okay, get your Bible out. Okay, Jesus, you guys remember this amazing story? He's literally in a boat with his disciples. It starts to have a big storm. They're out on a lake. Oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? What do they do? Jesus into the back of the boat. He's taking a nap, y'all. He's taking a nap. He's not freaked out. And so they say, wake up, Jesus. Jesus wakes up, says, shh. All the waves go silent. The storm stops, and they cannot believe who God is. Why does God do this? Well, because God is the creator. Do you remember in Genesis, how did creation come about? He spoke it into being. And so even now, creation obeys the voice of the creator. Now, I can speak to my kids, say, hey, bring me the remote control. What does he do? He throws something at my face. So 
There's a difference between the power of my voice and the power of God's voice. And we have to understand there's, there's a difference here. Now, Christian, this, this impacts your life because some of you are living in fear. Constantly afraid of the diagnosis, the situation, the next election, what's going to happen to us, to our country, to our people, to the church. What? Ah, God's not intimidated. He's not afraid. There is not a disease he can't overpower. There's not something he can't overcome. He's not in heaven being afraid. God hasn't looked at Pharaoh and said, what are we going to do? How's this going to play out? You've got a power on your side that is unmatched. Even death can't hold you. You want to be afraid of death? Why? Jesus overcame it. Surely in this world you have many trials, but I've overcome it. Well, you've got to be so afraid. God is on your side. Nobody can stop it. Second thing is this is pointing us to a bigger picture of God's power. You know, in this story in Exodus, do not miss the gospel shadows. The first thing that's happening is, is God is defeating his enemies, mainly Pharaoh, by his powerful works so that his people may be free, right? Now, where else do we see this? The gospel of Jesus Christ. God shows up in the person of Jesus, defeats our enemies, Satan, sin, and death on the cross, powerfully raises from the grave, victoriously over the enemies of God. Do you not see the picture? God is powerful in the book of Exodus. God is powerful in the books of the gospels and in the story. And what happens? Does God not become, what? The talk of all the earth, the nations. What happens in the book of Acts? What is happening still into this day? The nations cannot stop talking about this Jesus who Rome tried to kill and execute, and yet 2,000 years later, his voice is still being worshiped in all the world. God's power precedes his manifestation among the nations. He did it back then, and he's still doing it today. Number three, God is producing a worshipful people. Now, um, we're going to see this in the text, but let me just warn you, worship is not just singing to Jesus. We do that. We love to sing about Jesus in this place. We love to worship Jesus through song. But worship, God says, is, is bigger than that. Worship is orienting every area of our life around in glad submission and in obedience to God. That's what worship is. So you worship the Lord with your finances. You worship the Lord in the way that you steward your relationships, the way that you work with excellence and integrity. That becomes not work, but that becomes worship when you do it in a way that honors the Lord. God has not called you into just acknowledging him. He's called you in a life of worship. And what he's doing in Exodus is producing a people who won't just know some things about him, but who will worship him in every way that they live. Let me show you how he begins to build this out. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13, second half of the verse says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may serve me. Other translations say that they would worship me. Now, you might say, what a selfish God we serve, that he would want our worship, that he would do all of this so that we would serve him. But good, what he God is doing here. Pharaoh, the false God, where are God's people? They're serving him. They're acknowledging him. They're doing life according to his way. And God in Exodus is saying, no, 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 no. He's way too small to worship. Your worship belongs not on some created being, but your worship that belongs on your creator. And so I'm not moving you from slavery to freedom. I'm, bre- I'm, I'm actually moving you from service to a false small God to service and worship of the one true right God. Now, here's why that's great. You were built to worship God. For all of eternity, you will worship God. What happens, look at me, this is so huge. I love you enough to tell you this. This is the mistake we make. All of us make it. Instead of worshiping God, we oftentimes want other 
created beings to worship us. Check your Facebook page. What are you trying to do? Get worship. Likes. People acknowledge me. Tell me I'm great. See that I'm awesome. We want to be worshiped. And I'm telling you right now, God loves you enough to tell you you cannot handle the burden of being other people's gods. You will disappoint them. You will break down. You will get super weird. It never ends well when created beings try to worship other created beings. It only goes well for us when we acknowledge that there's one true God that we should worship. Amen? So that's what he's doing here. Now, this is going to be the thing that we see all throughout Scripture where God is going to start to um, build a worship culture among his people. Now, when they go to the desert, what are they going to say? We're going to worship God. Why? Because he delivered them. So one of the things we need to learn about worship is that God's work in our lives precedes our worship of him. That's what's happening here. God is working through the plagues to deliver his people to love the unlikely so that he put a new song in their mouth. It's one thing to say, would you worship me? It's a whole other thing to give you evidence and reasons for why I'm worthy of your worship. Why do I sing about Jesus Christ? Because I'm a forgiven man. Why do you sing about Jesus Christ? Because God at some point has met you and given you something you don't deserve and you have not earned. He has loved you in a way and worked in your life and transformed your heart and put a new spirit with inside you and given you a hope that will go beyond the grave but last for eternity. If God has done that, you worship because he's worked in your life. But listen, this is what God does. He builds a people who will worship him, amen? Now, I say that just because I want to press into our culture, I don't want you to be Christians who just think God's goal for you is for you to be smarter, to memorize some verses, to show up on Sunday. God wants your worship in every area of your life. Would you be a people, and would we be a people who worship Jesus in every area? Number five, God is providing grace to his people. Number four, sorry, God is providing grace to his people. And what we see in this is at two points, two things are happening Um, Two things are happening at one point. God is both showing wrath and judgment to one. He's showing grace to the other. And I want to show you how the Lord has shown grace to his people. Go to Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, it says this, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms or flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put division between my people and your people. Exodus 10, 23. He says this, Um, God is going to bring a plague of darkness, but he says all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So one of the things that you see God doing in Egypt and in the, the plagues is he's sparing his people from his wrath. All of the hail and all of some of the plagues are impacting the Egyptians, but they're not impacting their people. Now, why is this grace? Grace simply means you get what you do not deserve from God. Now, how is this an act of grace? Well, we're going to see the Israelites are no more awesome or spiritual or mighty or mature than the Israelites or the Egyptians are. They're both sinful and both broken. I mean, they're going to get into the desert, and yes, they're going to worship, but they're also going to complain. Yes, they're going to exchange God for an idol. Yes, they're going to start to grumble against God. And so what I'm telling you is it's pure grace that God would spare his people and show them grace and not wrath. And church, this is us. Can we just acknowledge this? We are not better than the people out there. You are not a people who've earned favor with God. You are a people who have received the grace of God. This is a picture of the gospel. We should be left out in the storm to experience the wrath of God, and yet Jesus has covered us. We are part of his family. We are protected. We are shepherded. We are loved by his grace. Number four, five, last thing is God is announcing his judgment is real. Let's go to Exodus 7, verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, wouldn't way to end the sermon. We're going to talk about judgment today. Lord is the judge. But listen, this is how he's chosen to reveal himself. He is the judge, and he will judge our sin, if not on this day, but on the last day. And this is, this is who God is. Now, you say, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. But who would our God be if he does not judge sin? If he allows murder and rape and injustice to happen, he does not step in. He just looks at it and goes, eh, no biggie. But that's not our God. He does not tolerate sin. He is holy. He is righteous. And so he judges sin. He punishes sin. And in this story, you're seeing his wrath get played out. He's punishing the sins of the Israelites or the Egyptians. He's pouring out his wrath on God's people. Now, this, this might not be disturbing if you think you're awesome, but this is going to be a very disturbing reality if you realize that you're a broken, sinful person. <laughs> the scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what does that mean we deserve? The wrath of God, which means that he's going to judge us. And so... Let me just press this in. This is frightening to me because I'm a pastor. I'm like a paid Christian. There's pressure with that. Can we just acknowledge that? Okay. And, um, and yet I see in my heart that I lust after shiny things and not the glory of God. I see in my heart how I want to take from my wife and not serve my wife. I see in my heart how I get frustrated with my kids and patient and discipline them out of anger and not love and gentleness. So, man, I'm just deserving of wrath. And so, Christians, here's our options. We can pretend like we're not that bad. Or we can hide behind the banner of Jesus Christ. And we can realize that we are deserving of the wrath of God, and yet Jesus is the one who took on the full wrath of God so that we could experience the full grace of God. This is why we worship church. Because the innocent one has died for the guilty. Now, in this story, I want you to see one last theme. There's both judgment and salvation happening. Judgment is happening upon Egyptians. God's wrath is being poured out. And yet salvation is being given to God's people freely by grace, and they are going to be free slaves. Now, here's where we're at. On the cross is not both judgment and salvation present. Judgment is happening on Jesus Christ. He's taking on the wrath that we deserve, and yet salvation is being accomplished by his sacrificial act on the cross. Wow. This, picture, this is a picture of a greater salvation that me and you know about. His name is Jesus Christ. Christians, I want us to worship Jesus with a fresh lens today. If you're a non-Christian in this place, you're just investigating. I want to I plead with you. Would you hide in the grace of God and be spared from the wrath of God? Would you acknowledge him in your heart today? Today we're going to take communion. We're going to do this um, in remembrance of Jesus. As we take the blood, we're going to remember that God's body was broken for us. As we take the juice, we're going to remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us. And if you, uh, just as a way of communication, you can come forward or in the back, there's going to be communication stations. Uh, we got a gluten-free table if you have a food allergy. So let me pray right now, and we'll take communion and worship together. Jesus, we remember you. We thank you. King Jesus, um, in this very moment, we want to just say, Jesus, we are, we are unworthy of your love and your grace. God, you say in your scriptures, you show mercy to who you want to show mercy to, and you, you pour out wrath on those who you want to pour out wrath on. And God... I want to just pray right now for our church, for these people, that, God, we would receive your grace through the personal work of Jesus Christ, that we would hang under the banner of it is finished. God, thank you for the salvation that you've made aware to us. Thank you, God, that we hide underneath your banner of grace, that you protect us and show us so much that we don't deserve, we have not earned. Thank you for the personal work of Jesus Christ. 
We are more than just former slaves that have been set free. God, we want to be your worshipers in every area of our life. And God, for those in this room that have not acknowledged, I pray for them right now. We love them. You love them. God, would you call them unto yourself that they would experience your grace on that last day and not your wrath. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.